Today we're going to be looking at one of the stories Jesus told, which I think is actually one of the most well-known. It's, it's one that I think is talked about uh, almost every day. And Jesus' story has become a category uh, to describe a particular type of action in our society. And it all goes right back to the story we're actually going to be doing today. And the story that we're looking at today is um, the Good Samaritan. Um, you could start here with thinking about the Good Samaritan. This is a, um, a Google search this morning in, uh, in the news part of Google. If you just type in Good Samaritan, you get up a whole bunch of uh, stories uh, there about, um, about Good Samaritans. And that's the title that's actually used there. Uh, you've got this story from the uh, 17th of October, just uh, a couple of days ago. A Good Samaritan claims his good deed was taken advantage of as squatters lock him out of his house. It's just common kind of terminology that if someone does something good and kind for someone who's in trouble uh, and they don't know them, you call them a good Samaritan. That's what you do. Here's uh, a really interesting story that was in the news in the last week as well. This one also from the 17th of October. So this, this guy finds someone's wallet and wants to return his wallet to him and um, there's no details in the wallet to be able to contact him so what this guy does is he decides I'm going to make a whole bunch of really small deposits in his bank account with a message every time he deposits it you know the little message you can put in the reference bit about my details and that's that's what he did this happened just recently in the UK Uh, so many stories of people doing this in fact there's probably a good Samaritan story unfolding right now and maybe even a Good Samaritan story that's going to be in the press that's unfolding right now. As I said before, it's when someone is in trouble and they need help and a compassionate person comes alongside and helps them. Uh, And it's especially the case when the person is a story. So let's read the story of the Good Samaritan from the Gospel of Luke. So if you can crack your Bibles open to Luke chapter 10, we... um, We're going to have a look at the story there. We're going to start at verse 30. Luke chapter 10, verse 30 to 35. Luke 10, verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers. He stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. That uh, amount of money was two days' wages. That's what that was. So let's kick in. Here's the, here's the first thing. People get beat up. What we've got here is a story of a guy uh, going from Jerusalem to Jericho and he gets beat up. And who knows that this is a world where people get beat up in all sorts of ways. People get beat up. We get beat up from time to time. The entrance of sin into the world and people turning away from God created this world where people get beat up in all sorts of ways. And it's been, you know, 
the, the, if you go back to the fall of humanity, it's like you, you look at it and you just go, Adam and Eve said we want to do things our way. And it's like that's worked really well, hasn't it? You know, we've just ended up with this culture like this. It's been a hatchet job. You know, there's a bunch of things that humanity does well, but there's a bunch that we make a hash of. So we can get beat up in lots of different ways. We can get beat up financially. We can get beat up relationally. We can get beat up in terms of our, our identity. Hope can get beat up. Stuff breaks down. Sin beats up on us spiritually. Our aspirations can be dashed. Our integrity can get beaten up. People get beaten, beaten up emotionally. People literally get beaten up. Careers get beaten up. Bodies get beaten up by health problems. You know, this week in a group this size, it's entirely likely that you've been beaten up. That's the reality of the world that we live in. You know, you just haven't been... The other thing is you haven't just been beaten up yourself. You have walked past a bunch of people who have been beaten up. Some of them you knew about and some of them you didn't. Let me, uh, I went to uh, Movement Day yesterday, which is about uniting Christians in a city for the, uh, the sake of the restoration of the city. And uh, let me give you uh, some statistics specifically from Toowoomba City, our, uh, our region here, about beat-up people. The local Domestic Violence Action Centre has seen 90, 90 women in the last 12 months. Over 1,600 women have received domestic violence support services in the last 12 months. 28% of families in Toowoomba, in the Toowoomba City region, are single parent families. And in the 2018-19 financial year, more than 1,000 beat up people moved to Toowoomba. Refugees. You know, there's beat-up people everywhere, right? <laughs> there just are. Some of you are sitting here and you feel beat-up and no one knows. You don't tell anyone about it. And I want to say to you, that's, that's a problem because a lot of the help that God wants to bring to you is through other people. It's another reason why you need to be in community with people because stuff happens. And if it hasn't happened yet, it's going to happen. And the help that God actually wants to bring to you is going to come primarily through other people. And I wonder, um, just as we begin this morning, how many half-dead, beat-up people did you see this week? Because there's no shortage. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? It just isn't a shortage. Now, I want to have a quick word about multitasking. No one can do it. That's the quick word. No one can do it, so stop trying to do it. Here's, here's the reality with multitasking. Let me give you an example. We know that multitasking when you drive is dangerous, don't we? The authorities know it, because one of the rules of the road is you're not allowed to use your mobile phone while you're driving, because multitasking with your phone and driving a car is not cool, because people get killed and accidents happen. Now, you know what else they actually know, is they know that even when you have got a hands-free device in a, in a car and you're on the phone, research has actually shown that that's dangerous as well because your head is just in a different place. And the issue is that you could actually be seeing things but not seeing them. 
That's, that's one of the realities. I've actually found that out. This is, this is multitasking, and, and what multitasking does, it kind of takes you out of seeing the things that are right in front of you. And I wonder, I wonder how much you were trying to multitask this week and how much it affected you seeing beat up people this week. Did it get in the way? Because you've got to slow down a little bit to actually see what's really going on in your world. Oh, yeah. I went to uh, Indonesia a, uh, quite a few years ago. I've been twice, but I went to, uh, one time I went over, spent a little bit of time in Bali at doing some pastor stuff, and then went to um, Jakarta. And we're at this big conference in Jakarta, and like, they are hardcore in terms of how long they actually do conferences for. Like, they start at about 8 in the morning and they pump through till about 8 30, 9 o'clock at night. I was just really glad I went with a bunch of people that were older than me because they just tapped out. They just went, we can't do this anymore. We've been doing Indonesian English, Indonesian English for like 10 hours and we're done. All right, let's go back to the hotel. I'm just going, I'm with you. I'm, I'm in that cab, all right? Um, but at, at a break time, I, uh, I noticed um, that there was a, uh, a really ritzy shopping centre um, across the road, kind of diagonally across the road in the centre of Jakarta. And I thought, oh, I'm going to go over and going to go and check it out, you know. So I went down and there was a walkway kind of overpass over the main road. Um, the traffic's just insane in Jakarta. But uh, went across this walkway and there, here's this, yeah, there's a bunch of homeless people on this walkway and there's a dude there. And I just kind of noticed as I was walking over and just going, oh, man, like, um, is he alive? Not, I mean, not even sure, but uh, just kept walking and, and, um, and went to the shopping centre and, um, and, and looked at the shopping centre, like crazy ritzy shopping centre, and then walked back over this walkway and, and, um, and, and as I was walking over the walkway and going back up, I saw this same guy again. It's like, man, like I, it was like an hour ago and you literally have not moved in the last hour. And, uh, and I... Um, I kept walking. You know, as I kept going, I, uh, <laughs> a bit of righteous indignation welled up in me. And I just thought, what, what a ridiculous thing that such opulence and such riches would sit so closely to such devastation. And then I realised that exact same thing was happening when I was standing next to him and walking past him on the bridge. Didn't even see it. <coughs> Do you get what I'm saying? Didn't, didn't even see it, didn't see me, didn't see that I was actually walking out what I thought the big problem was between this rich shopping centre and this guy being there. I was, I was the rich guy and I walked past. You can, you can just not see stuff, true? You can just not see stuff. You cannot see beat up people. There are beat up people all over the place. Verse 31 to 32, just um, go to it with me. Uh, religion and helping beat up people. Now by chance a priest was going down that road and when he saw him he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. Now, uh, let me dramatise this a little bit for you, right? We've got a situation here, everyone's listening to this story. And uh, it's like, man, man, this is not good. There's some poor dude on the road and he's just got beat up and he's like half dead and it's like, 
you can see in the texture, it's like by chance there was a priest coming, right? So if there's a stadium there and they're watching this story unfold, everyone's kind of cheering. They're going, this is going to be awesome, right? Because there's a priest coming and he's just going to nail it and he's going to get amongst it with this, this beat up guy. Um, we would just be cheering, right? God is so in this. There's like, God, look at that. God actually brought a Christian along, a, a church person along to actually help this guy. I shouldn't say Christian, a Jew, a, a, a church person. God is so into this. Surely, surely the guy who serves God, who loves him, who knows all the scriptures about God helping the weak and the orphan and the widowed. Where's he going? What, what is, you can't see him for dust. Now, you, you might want to defend this priest and go, well, maybe, maybe he thought he was dead and he didn't want to be ritually unclean. But notice that the story is that the priest is going down. Jericho is lower, Jerusalem's higher, he's walking away from the temple. <clears throat> Doesn't really work. But you just go, it's okay. You know, it's okay, we... He got caught out, don't know what was happening, maybe he was on his phone, okay? Uh, it's going to be all good, right? Because off in the distance, we can see a Levite coming, right? We can see a Levite. Um, don't, know, you know, what, I don't know what the deal was with that priest, but there's a Levite coming. This is going to be okay. This is going to be awesome, right? Like, yeah, I don't know what happened to him. He's just a bad guy. But this guy's going to do it, right? Because you're just kind of thinking, these are the people in the stands who know this stuff. And they're thinking, they're just going, this is going to be great because the, the tribe of Levi was responsible for the central sanctuary of Israel. They assisted the priests. They prepared sacrifices. They cleansed. They cared for the sacred courts. These, these Levites are assistants. And totally, hands down. There's, some, there's, um, there's no chance that this Levi, whose profession and the thing that he's meant to be doing in the church, the way that he serves in the temple, I should say, is uh, it's assisting. Oh, <laughs> Lucky day. This beat up guy is, is just lying there and, well, surely someone who assists is going to assist, right? This is going to be good. But he walks past too. And, and the crowd's going, what the? What's going on here? Now, off in the distance, there's another figure. There's a silhouette that comes, right? And, and um, you know, one of the typical sayings that sums up all of the people of Israel is priests, Levites, and the people, the lay people, right? So imagine the spectators in the stands. Okay, the, the priest bummed out big time. Um, the, uh, the Levite did not assist, <laughs> He was, he was an assistant and he did not assist. By definition, that's not a good assistant. But it's okay because there's a silhouette, right? There's, a, there's another guy coming and this is going to be just your ordinary Jewish punter, right? He's coming, like for sure, right? That's how it works. It's like priests, Levites and punters. That's basically Jewish punters. That's basically what it is, right? And so it, it's, it's got to be one of the clan, right? And um, just your everyday... Jew, maybe even in the stands, there's people running a sweep, right? And they're just kind of going, it's going to be a Jewish punter. It's just a lay person. We've got this all worked out. The priest, 
bummed out, the Levite bummed out, it's going to be a Samaritan. Now, you just need to know that the phrase Good Samaritan, or the description Good Samaritan, is, would have been an oxymoron. And like, they're two contradictory things that just don't make sense. In John 8, 48, the Jews said this to Jesus, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? <laughs> so, do you get that? It's like, like if you went up to um, someone that you didn't like and you said, not only are you really painful, but I think you have a demon. That's, that's not going to be in the book about how to win friends and influence people. Okay, you're actually saying something pretty significant about them as a person. You need to know a few things about Samaritans to understand what the options were in this story. When this Samaritan character shows up, well, they're outsiders. They, they didn't come to the temple to worship. They, uh, they worshipped the same God in Mount Gerizim in Samaria. Centuries of intermarriage have happened, which basically rendered Samaria... Gentile, overwhelmingly Gentile and ethnically contaminated. You know, this combined with their renegade sanctuary that they were doing on Mount Gerizim made Jews deeply antagonistic toward Samaritans, aka they were enemies. All right, so the Samaritans come along. What's the crowd thinking? Wow, this is going to be interesting, right? Because he could just... Lay the boot in. I hope he's got his industrial work boots on today because he could just finish him off if he's not finished off. Or at the, at the very worst, he's going to go through his clothes for loose change. All right? And, and loot the guy. What does he do? Well, his heart went out to the beat-up man. Now, one of the points that's often made about um, in the Good Samaritan story is that religion can stop people from helping others. Now, I don't think that's exactly what this story is actually talking about. But sometimes I think that people can do religion and they can miss the beat up people as though it's some kind of either or. or. I don't... And, and I think it's a genuine problem. If you're saying things like, I don't have time to help up beat up people because I have to go to church or I have to go to community group. I don't, it's not an either-or situation. It's not you either do church or you do care for beat-up people. The church, that's what the church is meant to be doing. But there is, there is a reluctance sometimes amongst people in churches, like I, I can't go near those people because they're going to defile me, even though Jesus was a friend of sinners, Right? You know, you have to get close to people to be able to help them. But let's just go back just half a step. If you look at the priest and the Levite, do you think the point that Jesus is making is that religion stops people from helping other people? I don't think so. I don't think that's the point that Jesus is making. I think we can see in real life that religion sometimes does stop people from helping other people, but I don't think that's the point that Jesus is making. 
I think the, the point that Jesus is making is they actually don't have any excuse. And I think the difference here is not a difference that's primarily the result of religion, it's a difference in people. You know, religion can get in the way of us helping other people uh, and we can see that in our experience but I don't think that's particularly clear in this story. Number three, helping beat up people is risky. Now, here's a, um, here's a photo of the Jericho Road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a well-known road. Uh, Jericho is 29 kilometres to the northeast. Jerusalem is 800 metres above sea level and Jericho is 250 metres below sea level. So to go from Jerusalem to Jericho is about a thousand metre descent to get to uh, Jericho. Steep, it's a steep rugged track with lots of caves and people typically would arm themselves to walk along this road because there's lots of place for bad guys to hide. It's a well-known place for bandits and robbers. And this is a reality about helping people, folks. For the uh, Samaritan to actually stop and help raises the stakes, doesn't it? You stop on this road and you're not a moving target anymore. A moving target's harder to hit. You know, to stop and help someone is to put your own life at risk. And there are genuine risks helping people aren't there you know i mean there have been many naive people who have wanted to go and help who have been badly hurt by others i mean there's stories all over the place there's stories in the news about it it is genuinely risky in fact one of the risks back in uh, 2007 an amendment to the um the civil liability act in queensland was made and it was put forward by jeff seney and, um, and Jeff Seney put this uh, amendment forward and it was called the Good Samaritan Amendment. That's what it was called. And it was, uh, the reason why they had the amendment is because the, uh, um, the, the politicians at the time said we're actually literally running a risk of people being in emergency situations and others not coming to their aid because they're afraid of litigation if something that they did to help actually went bad. And uh, so you can actually go to the, um, the Queensland Government website, you can read the research paper. It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating uh, paper of uh, research where they, they quote the whole of the Good Samaritan story and, uh, and they explain the Good Samaritan story and then they show how it actually applies to this Good Samaritan civil liability amendment. And so where they ended up, where they ended up is here, I'm just skipping that video, uh, and here's... Here's, uh, here's the guts of it. Civil liability does not attach... This is the bill. This is the past bill. Does not attach to a person in relation to an act done or omitted in the course of rendering first aid or other aid or assistance to a person in distress if the first aid or other aid or assistance is given in circumstances of emergency and the act is done or omitted in good faith and without reckless disregard for the safety of the person in distress or someone else. What, what does this amendment identify? It identifies the fact that when you help someone, there, there can be a risk associated with helping someone. And there's lots of different risks. You, you could be ripped off. You could be taken advantage of. You know, this, this is about, you could be liable for what you do to actually help someone. And do you know what? 
You can't have compassion on anyone or help anyone without being affected by them. You know, every time that I do pastoral care or counselling with someone who's really struggling, do you know, and I'm the same as this too, we're all the same, it's like you sit with someone and, and they're trying to persuade you that their view on life is the correct view. <laughs> that's, that's what we all do. And, and to actually engage with someone and get up close to someone like that and help them, there's going to be a cost in doing that. There's a risk there. You know, to carry someone else's burdens is a risk. You know, and we need to be wise about it. But do we, do we be so wise that we don't help? <laughs> I don't think so. Does the risk of being ripped off mean that we, we never ever put ourselves in a position where we can't be ripped off? I don't think so. You know, in uh, Toowoomba here, many of you would know Tiff and Nat Sparry, they run a, uh, a soup kitchen, right? And you know, I, we get all sorts of stuff happens at our church offices because they have the same offices as us, right? It's not that uncommon for the police to be there out the front. Um, and, and do you know the thing that I am, that, that, I, that I'm just amazed by with Tiff and Nat Sparry is that they have so much wisdom about how to work with people who are homeless, I mean, Nat himself was homeless. So if I bumped into a homeless person, there might be something I could do to help them. But do you know, one of the things that I'd do is I'd just go to Nat and Tiff and I'd just go, hey, can you just give me a heads up about, about how to help this homeless person really well? Because it doesn't just mean giving people everything they, that they want. Because everything that people want is not always going to be helpful. We, uh, we used to live... Um, my dad was a pastor and we used to live uh, in the house next to the church. Now, you probably heard a tone in my, in my voice at that point, the house next to the church. Uh, we lived there for five years. Um, in Brisbane, we lived at the house next to the church and people go to the house next to the church to get help. But there's wisdom in how to help people. So uh, I don't ever remember, we used to get heaps of them, some of them would They'd be drunks in the middle of the night showing up, knocking on the door and waking their house up. And, and do you know, I remember my parents always helping people who knocked on the door that needed help, but they were always wise about how they did it. So I, never once did my mum or dad that I know of ever give anyone who knocked on the door asking for help money. All right? Now, I'd, that's just wise, I think. So if someone said, I need a bus ticket to go to such and such, my dad would go, come on, let's go to the, uh, the bus station and I'll buy you the bus ticket. And if they said, I need some money to buy food, my, my mum would go into the kitchen and crack open some, a loaf of bread and make some food and just say, here, we'll give to you. You know, there is a wisdom in helping people because helping people can be risky. But we want to be generous people, don't we? Because God's a generous God. I think at the end of the day, the priest and the Levite didn't want their lives affected by the beaten up guy. I think that's really what it comes down to. They wanted to go and do their own thing and they didn't really want to be affected. Number four, helping beat up people 
is right. That's a clear part of the teaching of this story. It's right and it's good to help beat up people. So the Samaritan looks after this this guy and uh, sticks him in an inn, um, gives two days wages to cover costs and says, anything else that you're out of pocket, I'll fix you up for it. And the implication in the story is that the priest and the Levite are not loving. They walk past. They're not loving. And, and, and someone who's loving would help. That's really one of the things that this story is saying. Someone who's loving would help. I want to show you a, um, a quick clip from, uh, from 60 Minutes. It's a bit of an old one, but um, it's about Mount Everest and climbers going up there. Uh, it's pretty, pretty stunning. From down here, it sometimes looks like sheer madness, glory at any price. But there's something about Everest, a mystique that lures adventurers from all over the world too often to their death. In fact, more than 200 people have died trying to conquer the mountain, at least a dozen so far this year. We've just lost pioneer Australian climber Sue Fear in the Himalayas. And of course, there's also Lincoln Hall, presumed dead last week, then miraculously rescued. His survival is the stuff of legend. But as Peter Harvey reports, it also raises difficult moral questions, like how could anyone leave a man for death. And it was the death of British mountaineer David Sharp that highlighted this single-minded obsession with reaching the summit. At least 40 people passed Sharp who were still alive as they made their way up the mountain. Mark Evans was one. What did you say at the time? I thought he put down he gone at some people. It must have been a very tough call for you to make. Very tough call. And it gets tougher on this because you step over more warriors. Is that right? Should you do that? Uh, no, you shouldn't leave someone to die. You did? No. You did? They said no. Mark thought he'd return home to New Zealand a very favoured son, but instead, He's caught in a storm of controversy over David Sharp's death. A row every bit as ferocious as a full-blown Everest game. My family, uh, myself, have come under intense criticism for not saving someone who wasn't able to be saved. I have absolutely no regret over what I've done. I have a huge sadness for the family of the person that died out there. Of all people, Mark Ingalls should know what it's like to be trapped, injured and vulnerable on a frozen mountainside. Ingalls lost his legs 20 years ago when he fell victim to a raging blizzard. He spent 14 days in a snow cave on New Zealand's Mount Cook. Finally rescued on the brink of death, Frostbite took his legs. Did it cross your mind that there was something more you could do? Because, but because of what you are and who you are. But for them? Hmm. No. No, probably the opposite, really. It was get out of the way. 
They were pretty hard personality. too. No, no, no. I was, um, as most of them as soft as anyone. The implication in the story of the Good Samaritan, it's a very clear one, is that it's right to help people. And you can see the same kind of thing going on up there in that story, that it's just right. Like it's, we don't even have to spend that much time on it. Like it's just right to do that. Um, now, we can have a conversation if you're a mountain climber about all of that. Um, but... There is a sense, I think, with uh, as far as I can tell from the stuff that I've read about people who get up Everest, is that there's such a single-mindedness and a focus up there that they just walk past each other if each other's in trouble. Not all the time, but they often do. Now, I'll share something personal. And I only just worked this out yesterday. Um, some of you go, man, you... You look, got grey hairs. Yeah, that's right. Now, there's going to be other things I'm going to work out that I don't know yet. But do you know, I go to a lot of stuff and I hear a lot of statistics about brutal, awful things that happen in the world. And I hear lots of stories when I'm in the right context. And some of you, I know, operate in those kind of areas too, where people tell you about brutal things that are happening. Um, and I, I have this, and I only kind of just realised this yesterday, is I, I sit sometimes and I listen to uh, someone tell a traumatic, brutal story and I kind of get partially traumatised myself listening to the story. And, um, and then I get to the end of the story and there's nothing I can do about it. And, and so I was thinking about it yesterday, I thought, you, you know, we live in a 24-7 news cycle that traumatises people. We just do. And, and we're all kind of learning about stories that kind of traumatise us and spike up our compassion and then leave us with nothing that we can actively do to help out. And, and I think it's, it's just worth pausing and acknowledging that that's a dynamic that actually goes on in our world. Now, do you know what I think God calls us to do? He doesn't... He doesn't call us to get numb <laughs> to the tragedy in our world because we read all this stuff and we know all of this stuff that we can't do anything about. I think he calls us to look around at the beat up people around us in our circle, in the place that we move and get to work there. Do that. Now there might be some things that you could do for the the places that are far off and there's organisations that do that. So there's, uh, you know, there's stuff out with open doors like the persecuted church at the moment uh, because they're doing some stuff with, um, in northern Syria where the, where the Turks are kind of going in at the moment and Turkish armed forces are going in and, and making a bit of a mess over there at the moment. So th there are things that you can do. Sometimes you can contribute money that would be helpful and, and, and obviously you can pray for those things, you can get details for those things. But this would be my encouragement to you is just keep your eyes peeled for stuff that's happening around you and, and put your shoulder to the wheel in the things that are happening around you. Who are the beat-up ones in your space? Who are they? It could be your spouse, couldn't it? And they're not going to be the only one, but it could be your spouse. And you know, uh, Paul, um, Paul Miller, I'm reading a book of his at the moment, uh, which I've, I find him 
very personally helpful. And, and one of the things he says is he says, love is always substitutionary. You can't actually love someone else without giving up something of who you are. It just costs you. So you give up your life in some way to give them life. That's, that's what the Samaritan did, right? Gives up his life, a part of his life. He stops, he takes the risk, he gives money. Could have done something with that money. Could have bought a new electric knife or a microwave or something. Nintendo Switch. What does he do? He gives up the bit that was his bit so that someone else can have his bit. Someone else can have his life. And we know that helping people doesn't always mean giving them what they want by giving them what they need. And that can make it harder to help people. But we move in that direction. Here's where we're going to finish today. How do you become a truly loving person? Now, this is a good question, right? Because at this point, you're going to be going, okay, so I've just got to go and try harder. And I'd say, well, there is work to helping people, but is that the main thing that you need to walk away from, from church today? So I called Pete beat up on us and told us that we're bad and we're not loving people well. Well, you might be surprised, but I'd love for everyone to go to Luke uh, chapter 10 because one thing I didn't read to you when I read the story at the start was the context for the story. Now, the context for this story, it's kind of going to be like... Um, have you ever watched a, a movie or a story and it's like there's, there's something that you didn't know for two-thirds of the way through and then it comes out and then everything else kind of looks the same but it's totally different all of a sudden. Like the tectonic plates have shifted on the earth. And that's, I think, what happens in this story. When we actually go to the con- context, it's like, yeah, all the stuff that we've just looked at is true, but all of a sudden it all looks a little bit different because there's something significant going on here. And it's actually a story told because there's something a little sinister that's going on. Let's have a read of it. So Luke 10, starting at verse 25. And behold, the lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying teacher what shall I do to inherit eternal life he said to him what is written in the law how do you read it and the lawyer answers you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and with your and your neighbor as yourself and Jesus said to him you have answered correctly do this and you will live Look at the next line. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbour? <laughs> you get the point? Like, this is like that, one of the, the twist in a plot where you just go, ooh, okay, so, oh, this is, oh, this is really interesting right now. Now, what's, what's Justification. To be justified, let me, let me put it this way, to be justified is for there to be a public declaration of your righteousness. That's what being justified is. To be publicly declared to be good and righteous. Now, we like to do that, don't we? 
We do it in sneaky ways in Australia because of the tall poppy syndrome, but we do like to do that. We like to find ways to publicly kind of sneakily declare that we are a good person, that we're righteous. And what's, what's he doing? Well, he's a lawyer and he's got the, uh, the Jewish Old Testament system and he's going, what do I need to do to nail this? And it kind of makes a bit of sense. Jesus, he's saying to Jesus, tell me who my neighbour is. And then, you know what Jesus does? Jesus tells a story that I think puts it beyond his reach. Jesus goes, oh, you want to, here's the answer to your question. So, so come with me to, uh, to the end. So verse 36. This is what Jesus says to the, um, the lawyer at the end. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbour to the man who fell among the robbers? Now, before you gloss over that, I do want to read the next verse, but before you gloss over that, Jesus has done our switcheroo on it, which Jesus does all the time. Done the switcheroo. What, what was his switcheroo? Well, at the start, the guy's going, who's my neighbour? Noun. And at the end, Jesus is going, who's being neighbourly? Verb. You see the difference? He's flipped it on him. Verse 37. The lawyer couldn't even say the Samaritan. He said, uh, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So the obvious question, I think, is how do you become this kind of loving person? Do you know the measure of how loving you are as a person is not found in the way that you love your friends? The measure of how loving you are as a person is how you love your enemies. So an ISIS fighter's widow moves in next door. She's a radical Muslim, still. You're getting closer, I think, to what Jesus is talking about here. Now, some of you go, well, can you be, can you be, uh, can you work hard and be a loving person? And I just go, yeah, well, probably in the sense that if you wanted to catch a Qantas plane to go to the moon, like you're not going to get outside of our atmosphere, you probably can do a few things, but you're just going to have so much further to go. And I think this is what Jesus is saying to this lawyer, so much to go. So he's trying to work out what he needs to do to be a completely loving person, the way that God's law commands. And do you know the irony of it all? Is he's in it for himself. He's trying to make sure that things go well for him. He's, he's curving in upon himself it's it's such an incredible irony is that there's this there's this lawyer trying to get across the line tell me who's my neighbor who i need to love when really he's loving himself and jesus then draws the line so far out that he i think he's meant to go i don't think i can get there will will this lawyer with that answer ever be able to justify himself And I think, I think part of Jesus' strategy here is to uh, paint us into a corner. Because you know what? The kind of loving person that God wants you to be, you can never, ever get there on your own. You will never get there through sheer grit and determination. 
you'll always fall short. And let me add one more thing on your pile there. The kind of person who's declared righteous, who's justified, you will never ever get there on your own either. Can't get there. You know, the only way to get across that line, to be justified, to be the kind of loving, good person that Jesus speaks of, is to admit that you're unacceptable and to ask Jesus for forgiveness and to ask for his record to be transferred to you. His death on the cross, you can't get there by yourself. You know, you don't get to justification by sorting it out yourself. You can't publicly declare that you're righteous. You're not going to get to be a truly loving person by sheer effort and grit. There's going to be grit and effort in loving people, but that's not what's going to get, what's going to get you there. You, Romans tells us, were Jesus' enemy. Humanity was his enemy. And we threw him under the bus. Do you know something? Being loved by someone who goes to the cross for you and dies and rises again, who lets humanity throw him under the bus, and you handing in all your weapons, <laughs> all your stuff, all your ambitions, all your will, everything, and saying, I'm yours, I belong to you, please forgive me, and come and enter into my life, do you know what? You will become a loving person that loves your enemies. That's what, it's, it's just going to happen. It can't not happen. And you'll be acceptable. I'm done. Let's, uh, for those who are project people, let's be, um, let's be Jesus' people, let's, uh, let's love him and be loved by him. And if you don't, if you don't know Jesus, um, you need to, because he'll, uh, he'll totally change your life, make you a completely different person. And uh, there'll be work in it, but it'll be a far less burdensome work because your rightness and your goodness doesn't hinge on your performance. You don't have to uh, make things up or make excuses for yourself. You don't have to... When you make a mistake or you do something wrong, you get all selfish. Um, You don't have to find some way to pay that back because he's sorted it all out.